0: In part two of our dialogue on the most important issue of our time, the meta-crisis, the philosophers Sean Hagens and Nick Headland clarify the many components, the many individual threats that together constitute this overriding threat to our survival and well-being. They point out how we can make sense of them and how we can begin to heal them. They also point out that what we call our global crises are actually global symptoms. They're symptoms of our individual and collective psychological and spiritual dysfunctions, and that effective responses need to include both outer work in the world and inner work on ourselves and our culture. Join us to hear two of the world's greatest pioneering thinkers and authorities make sense of the great challenge of our time.
1: Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit.
0: Add to what you just said, John, that part of what's made a very important distinction there, Sean, really between dialogue and debate. The right. Debate is trying to win win an argument and dialogue is, you said it very beautifully, being vulnerable and being willing to have one's mind changed and one's hearts changed. And that's that's so important and so, so, uh, so rare these days.
2: Yeah, and often when people encounter that you understand their perspective, they really feel like you authentically get their perspective, but they also know you hold another perspective. Like It's very confusing to them. They're like, okay, I, I feel like you really get me. You really get what I'm saying. I can sense that authentically, but now I'm confused. How can you do that and hold this other perspective? And then in that is a possibility for them to begin to open up their perspective viewpoint, because they're feeling seen, they're feeling in a sense loved, right? You're not making them wrong because you're demonstrating, hey, I see it like that too, or I can really connect and appreciate what you're highlighting, like that makes sense to me. And they really feel your sincerity in that. But then they also hear you saying, but hey, there's these other aspects that kind of the way you're approaching it doesn't include. And then, you know, now there's the opportunity for a real dialogue, right? And so because now they can be transformed by you, just as you're being transformed by them. Well said. Beautiful.
3: Absolutely. I I think that that heartfelt empathy like tends to support the sense of curiosity and openness to what else might be going on. And, you know, I think one of the other pieces that I would add around the developmental perspective and in terms of the crisis is that I think integral theory is really strong in terms of helping us to, Take these multiple perspectives and inviting us to find that place of empathic resonance with it with folks that inhabit different worldviews and find the place where it connects in ourselves. But critical realism sort of highlights that, well, that's all that's very good. And we all live in one world. There's there is there is a reality. There is a truth to certain uh certain questions have and have an answer, right? And and so I think. There's something about this, um, the reality principle kind of kicking in and interfacing with that whole process of, of dialogue. Well, So, for example, you know, where I live in, in Northern California, one of the ways that climate change is, is manifesting predominantly here is increased wildfires and so forth. And so I think what we're seeing is that, while well, as climate change and the different facets of the Metacrist Metacrisis kind of moved from this more abstract notion to this more concrete expressions of like there's a there could be a wildfire, you know, in our backyard here. And so this sense of um, all of a sudden, it's a lot easier to connect with the reality of climate change as I don't want to lose my home. I'm really interested in in my community continuing to thrive. And so all of a sudden, if we're orienting to it from that place, there's, there's a conversation that is much more appealing across multiple worldviews. So it's really trying to find uh, those places where what's actually happening in the world is connecting and and resonating in the hearts of different folks that inhabit different worldviews.
0: And, and since the idea of development has been brought in, let me give a little context and then ask you a question. The context is just the to acknowledge the presuppositions we've that has been part of this conversation that that both these both these theories recognize that adult development can continue beyond what we thought of as the ceiling of human possibilities into so-called post-conventional stages of moral thinking or cognitive complexity or or emotional maturation, et cetera, et cetera, and one of the issues that is increasingly being voiced is that our technological powers are now so great. We've become, we have effectively become nuclear giants and technological wizards, while remaining ethical infants and, and wisdom adolescents, and and that the crises we have created are beyond our capacity to comprehend in in some ways. And one can either feel despair at that, or one can see it from a developmental perspective as a call for all of us to, both individually and collectively, mature. And I'd love to hear your your perspectives on that.
3: Yeah,
2: one thing that we've talked about a number of times is how the meta-crisis is developmental catalyst, culturally, collectively, um, for it's an invitation for us to evolve together into new modes of uh, perception, of experience, of meaning-making, of communication with each other. But unlike a lot of viewpoints out there that kind of feel like we need a big crisis to kind of get our act together, the i feel it could go either way in the sense that you know a lot of sociological data shows that when communities or cultures are are stressed they devolve they they go back to earlier forms of meaning making and so they get more tribal more territorial they they do all the things that are in a sense opposite of what they probably need to do to overcome the challenge that they're facing so i think you know there's a lot to consider, like reasons we should be optimistic about what lies ahead of us. And I think there's some r- real reasons to be concerned <laughs> about what lies ahead, and and you know, I tend to be more of an optimist, but I think there's an urgency and there's a seriousness to use Ashkarian term, right? like like there's like the stakes are high, in other words, and you know, and so I think there's some of us who In relationship to and response to the meta crisis, are going to be catalyzed into higher orders of perspective taking and meaning making, and 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 develop deeper ethical orientations, and and mature and grow and develop emotionally and interpersonally, in in all the ways that the human trajectory makes possible. But then there's going to be some of us that don't do that, that are going to dig in, that are going to have a scarcity model, that are going to you know be Chicken Littles, the sky is falling, and you know, and you know, and so there. So, like, how do we navigate that collectively? Like, how do we increase the likelihood that that the challenges we face, as illustrated by the Meta Crisis, can be an invitation for us collectively to mature, to mature emotionally, psychologically, interpersonally, spiritually, so that because I think it really does require us to work together to deal with this, and I think that's the that's the the beautiful opportunity of the meta crisis is you know we're really going to have to be a much more mature species a much more mature humanity to navigate through it with any semblance of you know success or you know coming out the other side you know somewhat intact but i, I think it's going to also be ugly i think it's not going to look pretty and already it's not looking pretty like i i think it's going to be a complexity of of many challenges and and also Many opportunities. And this is why in integral ecology, I introduced this, what I call the integral ecology mantra, that things are getting better, right? That you can look around at the environment, you can see all kinds of new legislation being passed, new environmental awareness, you know, a lot of great things to celebrate with respect to um, the natural world. At the same time, things are getting worse right? Species loss is increasing, resource use is increasing. You know, there's many, you know, things that point point to in terms of pollution and so forth of how it's getting worse. So it's both getting better and it's getting worse. And then I also add in this third consideration that it's always already perfect, right? It it just is what it is in a beautiful, in a self-illuminated way to reconnect us with some of the the contemplative wisdom of our traditions of of not getting overly identified with it, either getting worse or getting better, right? Because those are identities. And when we're overly committed to either one of those identities, getting worse or getting better, then we can't see the truth and value of the other identity, right? And we're we remain in polarization. So one of my core practices in all of this is how do I place my embodied awareness at the intersection of it's getting worse, it's getting better, and it's always already perfect and and I just sit at the intersection of those three truths. And and that creates this paradoxical tension in me, but it keeps me alert and alive to all the possibilities and I think for me that's been a core way of kind of navigating this for myself because whenever I overemphasize one of those three considerations, I immediately feel the inadequacy of it in relationship to, it's not fully including the truth of the other one or two perspectives, right? The challenge of sitting at that intersection is it's not always clear what the next step is, right? Right? And then that's why we need to be in dialogue with others who are kind of similarly hanging out in that place of uncertainty, of realizing in some important ways, things are getting better, amazing developmental opportunities, collective opportunities, Things are getting worse. Like the news cycle just gets more and more difficult to listen to, and there's also just the eternal nature of our consciousness being free from any and all of this, right? And in a more kind of transcendental sense. So, so it's quite, you know, it's quite a process.
1: No, you look at you look at the political map across the world, and you see uh, the rise of authoritarian right wing governments. Uh, Italy has a first right wing. Since government, since Mussolini, uh, and in Hungary, and Poland, and in our own country, the uh, Trumpism and the January sixth thing, and all of that, just just keeps coming up, and it makes me think that whatever we're doing, progressives, which I primarily been identified with most of my adult life, maybe not so much anymore. I'm looking for something a higher ground, and that at this point. But how can we? As you were saying, speak to the fears of people that are not being addressed by progressivism, the other side of the spectrum. It's giving rise to so we need strong men or we need a strong woman to take over and take charge. And maybe democracy is not that important and not just poo-poo them as you know, they're just lower developmentally or something, but we have to take into account um why they're moving in this direction and that they have they they have valid fears that need to be addressed in a way to make them feel that they're actually being considered and heard and not
0: taken as as fools
2: yeah well i think you know failure of you know liberal globalism is largely in that it it left a lot of important voices disenfranchised and and the The rise of Trumpism and, and similar kind of more conservative, you know, initiatives globally is in response to the ways in which their legitimate concerns and fears and perceptions were discounted and unincluded in the, the global liberal agenda, in, in effect, right? And so, you know, I think, you know, and Wilbur's done some interesting analysis around this as well, in some of his writings. And so, you know, I think, are searching for that higher ground that you mentioned John you know and i think that's the opportunity of the meta crisis is if we find the right orientation towards it it could really help us collectively to discover and create that higher ground together because i suspect we're not going to be able to address the meta crisis unless we do that on a large enough scale that we really you know can can make it through the many challenges that are coming our way you know, in the next year or two, let alone the next, you know, decade or so. You know, we, it's, it's going to be a rough ride. But I I ultimately have faith in humanity. I feel like we're a very creative species. Um, But I also feel like, you know, it's, it's still up in the air. <laughs> it's like we, there's a kind of urgency, like we really got to put our best foot forward and, and see how we can talk to each other and work together to avert some of the, the possible you know ills and challenges that are, are coming at us you know pretty fast
1: and and nick how, how do you feel about this you know and the work that you're doing which i've just gotten pretty excited about over the last few days i thought it was going to be a real task to read your papers and everything and i found myself just getting lit up so how do you feel that your 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 work is is helping and and the old native american Thing when you go on your vision quest, you get your big vision, you come back here in the sweat lodge, and the medicine man says, "Well, will it grow corn?" You know, this is all well and good; it's a great vision, but how will it help the people? Will it grow corn? So, how do you, how do you feel the work you're doing, and maybe you know, initiating this work uh is is going to grow corn.
3: Mm. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it for me comes down to this: this sense of, as Roger implied, that a lot of these questions are are bigger than where even even some of the most bright and evolved minds on the planet are capable of actually comprehending in any kind of real way. So there's this sense of, well, what do we do in that? That's there's kind of a, a humbling a humbling communication that's happening in that, and so maybe that's exactly it. Maybe maybe the, the humility is what's needed and sort of cultivating this sensibility of a reverence for reality uh, and learning how to listen on on a deep level right not just learning how to listen to people talk but learning how learning to listen to reality as such uh, and learning to listen to the different manifestations of the meta crisis and and take them in and let our being be transformed by through that listening through that receptivity and so that's, you know, that's a big practice of mine is like actually bowing to reality as this sacred, sacred field, right? And beginning to listen. And we can do that. And I mean, the, it can be overwhelming to talk about the metacrisis because it's so big and abstract, but in many ways, all these things are manifesting in very concrete ways in, in each of our lives. And so I think that has also been an important practice for me that i think the philosophy i'm developing is an invitation to just be really present in our own lives and our local worlds holding a very big global complex perspective so you know this idea of cosmopolitan localism so for example as i mentioned before wildfire is this big thing in, in in northern california and so for me i'm actually really stages of getting together this project that's around transforming our communities and how we're responding to wildfire in Northern California. And so there's an inner and outer dimension to that. There's, you know, the very basic dimension of, oh, well, our forests are overgrown, climate change is making these these situations more probable, more intense. So we need to come in and clear out the underbrush and the forest and so on. And that's really important. And we're do, we're working with regenerative practices like, uh, transforming that carbon instead of burning it or letting it break down and go back into the atmosphere, transforming it into biochar and then weaving it back into permaculture systems where that carbon's sequestered. But the deeper thing there for me is like really listening to what are these fires expressing? Like what is nature expressing and what is being communicated by the intelligence of nature? So the philosophies that we're developing, I think are helping to vindicate the idea that nature is this profound intelligence and that's not just a magical or anthropomorphic projection. That's actually a real thing and that we can learn and to receive those communications and 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 understand that there's this there's a valid mode of sort of transdiscursive communication between the broader world, the world of the divine, the world of nature, and the human realm, and so I think a lot of what we're trying to do is sort of reweave the human back into the fabric of the world, and so that that's where a lot of the work with ontology and epistemology comes in, which is really a way of of speaking about what is the, the relation between the human and the rest of the field of nature, and so this idea, I think, we're, we're looking for new identities that. The honor the reality that we are nature you're totally one with nature and yet there's something emergent and unique about humanity we we're endowed with this self-reflexive consciousness we've been given in a sense the logos of, of radical creative powers and you know right now we're wielding those in in fairly immature ways right and and The technological and intellectual prowess, as you mentioned, Roger and other Daniel Schmachtenbergers and others have highlighted, it's really out of balance with our moral and spiritual and, and, and emotional development, right? But if we can learn how to just get into this more receptive state and listen to these communications, then we say, okay, there's smoke and fire all around me. What is the nature field saying about my relationship to the fire element? humanity's relationship to the fire element. And for me, that's something I've been sitting with, and it has arisen for me is this sense that what's being mirrored back to us is that our our relationship to the fire element is very much out of balance. And we've tended to take that, uh, our relationship to the fire and channel it in these ways that are about hyper consumerism and go, 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 and um, sort of this materialistic, externally focused fire of capitalist kind of mode, but I think we're being called, at least this is my sense is that we're being called to draw that fire element back inside to become a a fire of inner transformation, a fire fire that's evolving our hearts and our, our consciousness and really looking at the ways that we're living very concretely on the planet. And looking at what we can do, that what this what steps can we take to contribute to the the full system reboot that's needed right now, and no one really knows exactly what that looks like, and so we we find ourselves at this mysterious precipice where we don't we we don't we actually are struggling to to find an intellectual map of the trajectory, the theory of transition that is going to get us to a more flourishing society. And so I, f- I feel like there's, there's an invitation to just sit in the unknown and be as receptive as possible and cultivate that reverent heart sensibility and then trust that there is radical intelligence in who and what we are. And if we can create the right kind of space, then that makes the, the possibility for that emergence all the more likely.
0: Very, very beautiful. And what I hear you both implying is that for you, the meta crisis has become a teacher, something you're both using, coupled with your love of nature and deep, deep con- na- connection with the natural world. For you, this is not just a challenge to be met and a contribution to be made, but also a deeper a deeper mode of inquiry, a wisdom, a wisdom teaching. Those are the words that come to mind to describe what I'm picking up from you both, and it feels really important.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, thank you, Roger. I think that's true, yeah, for both of us. You know, and John, in kind of response to your question, like, you know, how are we going to grow the corn? You know, I think one of the things Nick and I do in the introduction to this current book is we reflected on like what allowed this symposium series to be so successful? Right? We had four symposiums over five years. We brought together between fifty and seventy people, you know, at different points in the process to collaborate, compare notes, and think about, you know, how do we apply these big picture models and frameworks to real world issues and challenges in education, economics, social psychology, religion, spirituality, research, and when Nick and I reflected on, and we felt by and large, it was a successful process. Um, and it's on two books and we're coming out with a third book. The first book came out in 2016 is mostly kind of theory-based, kind of comparing the theories. Then the volume that just came out this year and the next one that's coming out next year are more of the applications of how how is this group of scholar practitioners applied These big picture maps, two different areas of, you know, kind of addressing aspects of the meta crisis. And both of current volumes, the one this year, next year, are really framed around the meta crisis. Yeah. And so Nick and I reflected on what were the qualities that allowed these 60 to 70 people to get together and successfully, you know, have a conversation over, you know, a six year period. And we identified six things that seem to be really important contributing factors, and, and I'll just go through these quickly because I think they're instructive as to how might we think about this larger process of dialogue, perspective seeking, and what do we need to do across other groups and, and collaborative initiatives, right? I think these six qualities, when you hear them, you'll appreciate that, yeah, this this is pointing to the way in which we need to be together in order to make more progress with these difficult issues. The first is around just dialogue and dialectical engagement. So just being in a back and forth and kind of that piece we talked about, you know, being transformed by the conversation, you know, at different points, you know, where you're sharing your viewpoint and you're receiving their viewpoint. And so we did that in these two groups, you know, for several years. And there was an initial honeymoon phase where we're like, oh, man, integral theory is amazing. Critical realism is amazing. They're so similar. And then after about a year and a half, then it was like, no, they are so different. And then it was like this falling out. And, you know, there's like these baits and battles about key terms and what was meant by this and that. And, but throughout it all, there's a deep dialogue and dialectical process at work. The next piece was learning to speak each other's languages, right? How were we using key terms? What were important commitments that different theories or models had, right? And really, you know, kind of having to learn a different language because the language critical realists use is really different than the language integral theorists use, even though sometimes the words are the same, right? So taking the time to learn that language um, was really key. And then the next piece was what we refer to as particular orientation of generosity, like orienting towards the other in in a generous place of being open to their interpretations being open to the truth claims that they're making and not just dismissing um, their understandings and and assuming there must be something to what they're saying. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't be saying it like they've arrived at this position through a long process of consideration, even if we're seeing something that's missing in it. So it was just kind of realizing that both approaches were saying something important about reality and, and trying to lead with that spirit of generosity. And then it was working together on real projects and mixed teams. So really choosing topics like education or psychology or religion and having people who were critical realists and critical theorists and others who are maybe not overtly identified with one of those two perspectives or approaches and having them work and collaborate together because it was actually being in the same sandbox, actually trying to ask ourselves, okay, what does this look like applied in education? What does this look like applied in environment? studies, like because you can, you know, talk all day about, you know, and debate and consider all these things. But when you actually move into working together and collaborating and trying to make this hit the road and get some traction, then a whole different set of conversations and considerations emerge. So we found it was really important to apply these ideas in mixed teams to really take it to the next level of of possibility. The fifth area was a quality of reflexivity of around one's own viewpoints and biases at an individual and kind of team level, right? Or like the integral theorists really reflecting on what are our biases and preferences and the critical realists doing that for themselves and being open to acknowledging that and saying, okay, our theory seems to be stronger here, but seems to be pretty weak in this area, and and being in a real honest open reflective process around our our individual and collective strengths and weaknesses and then lastly was the cultivation of philia right the cultivation of brotherly and sisterly love so eating meals together um, talking you know between the the conference sessions or the symposium sessions like you know um hosting each other at our homes you know the, for those who had traveled from out of town Doing those things that allowed us to connect, you know, in a more personal, friendly way, opposed to just being the scholars, you know, with a theory, trying to like figure out how to apply it. Like, so making time and space for really connecting person to person, heart to heart. So together, these six areas that I just walked through, we found seemed to be kind of the secret ingredients to the success of this long-term collaboration with multiple viewpoints, you know. And things got heated; it wasn't always pretty, you know. Like you know, the people are rolling up their sleeves and you know getting ready to duke it out. But I think those six qualities allowed us to to work at a deeper level of ourselves and of humanity. And so Nick and I write this up in the introduction because we feel like maybe there's something to be learned from those six qualities. Maybe there's additional ones in other situations. But we wanted to reflect back to our readers, how do we need to be together in order to make progress with these metachrist challenges that we're facing?
0: <laughs> Sean, I want, to, I want to just emphasize one point of what you said that worked Quite some years ago, I had the privilege of being in a group of very high-level people, vice presidents, ambassadors from Central American countries, brought together by the great psychologist, uh, Carl Rogers, oh, wow. as a kind of encounter group. Yeah. And for four days, these people were together, really duking out some really heavy is- heavy issues. And I was one of the and my wife, Frances, and I were psychologists who were kind of salting this and you know we had we had one of the greatest 20th century psychologists Carl Rogers leading this and facilitating and it was powerful but i have to say The thing which shifted it most was on day three when people got together and and had a meal and drank beer together (laughs) and drank a lot of beer. My favorite moment of this entire gathering is when one ambassador climbed over a table after a lot of beers to sit next to another, and they compared photos of their kids. It was like that that was heart-touching and transforming. really was. Wow, oh, beautiful. Yeah, and
2: I mean essentially it's like how can we be friends? I mean, that's the solution. Yeah. That's that's the yeah. big solution here. How can we all be friends, you know, like and then have conversations, right? You know, that are heated and intense and, you know, but it's like how do we cultivate that philia? How do we cultivate that brotherly sisterly love and that connection that really enables a different kind of conversation to happen?
3: Yeah. And I've you know one of the things that's interesting to me is that as we were going through the process i didn't really realize how rare this kind of thing is for two different approaches two different schools of thought to get together and really try and uh, learn about each other and be in this dialogue be in this dialectic and i think it's you know that kind of engagement is exactly what's needed on the planet both in you know in in these realms of philosophy and and the academy but in all the realms and i think that I, that is the real secret is that that philia that sense of connection, the, that sense of humanity, that sense of heart, and that's something that cuts across, you know, these the differences in our worldviews, right? That's, that's that's not a developmental quality per se. The capacity to just connect on that human level, and you know, these stories like. Um, Bob Keegan tells this story about folks in in Boston who are dealing with the situations around real, real tension and conflict and around abortion. And there were people who had been killed and violence erupting and so forth and these psychologists got together and they brought both sides of this uh, this kind of polarized social dynamic together and created these spaces and they ended up not really agreeing at the end of the day of, about the issues on a cognitive level but what did transform was that they made this real heart connection with each other and they they learned to humanize each other again and that was enough to solve the issue. So it's not always about you know aligning our sense making down to the nuances. Right? There's there's a, the heart level is just as important,
0: just as important, or perhaps even foundational. And the high, if as you've both been saying, the the human connections are created, then there's the capacity for hearing each other, and perhaps never coming, never agreeing completely, but at least. At least approaching each other in a spirit of of humanity, which is seems so very crucial. And Carl Rogers said, had a beautiful line. He said, When I look out at the world, I feel hopeless. When I look at individual people, I feel hopeful. Mm. Wow.
1: Mm. Hey Sean, if you recall, I wrote a book called Integral Recovery Right. Some years back. And I think you were the editor, or one of the yeah. editors Paper yeah. hey, something. You had a, a hand in it. And for eight years, Austin, Southern Utah was a treatment center. And uh, these guys were showing up and gals at our door were not exactly what you consider at an integral level of development, but they were able to get the four quadrants. They were able to get that this disease caused me to morally go down, you know, down the hill from where I was. And uh, so they were able to get developmentalists and they're able to get Different lines of intelligence. Yeah, I'm really good at this. I'm really bad at this. And this is killing me. And, but, but the main thing that brought it together, I think they felt that I understood them. Although I'm not an addict. I listened and listened and listened and reflected back to them and the other stories I'd heard for years, you know, doing that field, but it was the love. Mm-hmm. They knew her, they were in this small band of brothers and sisters that really cared about each other and, and that, that what we were dealing with on on a very personal real level was life and death and uh it just i don't know it was just a powerful learning for me and yeah and 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 a good reminder that yeah that we got to have deep love and if we don't have it we got to find some we got to dig deeper and to find that place and if we when can communicate this through deep compassion and and listening and coming from a place where this person really does love me or care about me and he kind of gets me that it can certainly certainly help us to be well to grow corn essentially
2: yeah beautiful yeah yeah i love the work that you've done there and the book that you've written which i've recommended many times over is it even for people not working in a recovery space the the model that you developed and present there is a really great illustration of how to use an integral approach or just growth and development. So, really, again, thank you for the work you've done there.
1: Nor and your support. It was a big feeling getting that published, actually. So, thank you.
0: And an obvious question that stems from this recognition. Very, and I noticed just the tenor of our conversation has changed as we've acknowledged the the crucial role of human connection in responding to every the crises everything from personal addiction through to planetary uh, civilizational threat and so the question obviously comes up is how do we how do we scale this yes we need to we need to see each other appreciate each other as humans and and hold each other and connect in that way and yet we have these these Huge technological innovations, social media, which are premised on making money, on separating and polarizing people. And do you see a? Do you see? I can't I? Can't see a way through this? Can you?
2: No, but I, I have some initial thoughts
1: uh, that maybe. Please, I can't. Great <laughs> question.
0: Yeah, I mean,
2: Roger, that's the sixty-four million dollar question there. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I think part of what started out talking about big mind, right? Like these big maps and models and how they enable us to see, you know, the the challenges we're facing. And then we, we've we been touching in on big heart over the last, you know, few minutes of the conversation. And, and we really need both. We need big heart to, to be friends with each other, to connect to each other, to love each other. So, so we need that in equal measure to the big mind. The big mind, you know, using these big integrative meta theories, the. What I see their value in, one, I think they support us with having a big heart, right? And I even gets back to what I talked about early in my introduction of these frameworks allow me to connect with all of reality and develop an intimacy with reality. And part of that is just a heartfelt love and connection with my fellow human beings and, and animals and plants on this you know earth. But I think big mind that is important here is the expressive capacity. Like we need more expressive capacity as a humanity to be able to talk about the meta crisis. I feel like a lot of our theories are inadequate for holding the complexity of it, the, the developmental aspects, the, you know, psychological, behavioral, cultural, systemic aspects of it, right? You know, the four quadrants. Like So there's there's a lot that these frameworks that Nick and I, you know, work with that allow us to have a new new kind of conversation with each other, right? So this is one way we scale it. We develop kind of a a shared framework, a a shared set of distinctions that enable us collectively to have a new kind of conversation about the meta crisis, right? And it, it doesn't have to be exclusively integral theory or critical realism. I think both of those meta models provide some important considerations for what that shared framework or those shared distinctions might be. But it's like, we're in a post-truth era and we need to find some shared meaning making of how we think about, how we talk about, how we communicate about, and ultimately how we inform our our action together, right? So I think part of it is because I've teach students, cause I run a master's and doctoral program in integral theory. When I teach them the integral model, they're able to use that model and apply it to ecology or education or medicine or you know all kinds of domains so it's a it's a shared language that can go into a lot of different domains and then it allows them to collaborate with other people familiar with that model and that framework to have very interesting conversations around how to bring healthcare and education together or you know and so so i think part of what we need in terms of the epistemic crisis is we need frameworks to better see and respond and talk about the complexity of all of this. And so to the extent that these frameworks can help us develop a shared language, I think that shared language is how we scale it. Because if we're all speaking a different language, it's gonna be really hard to have a conversation. So that would just be my initial sense that part of scaling it is is developing through collaboration and conversation, some set of, of shared distinctions or frameworks that allow us to keep talking about all of this in a generative way.
1: Okay, friends, this conversation, thank God, continues as we were really rolling, and the Dia Logos was alive and well in this conversation, and on we go. Stay tuned. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about Iowake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do from John Roger and the Deep Transformation team.